Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's program, live from Dufourstrasse here in Zurich. Florian Egli is here, also Markus Schugel. But Florian, we missed each other in Asia. We're back uh, here around the table. Uh, what's caught your eye? Are we talking Asia this morning or other, other topics? We do talk a bit of Asia. I'm linked to an article in The Guardian, um, mainly about differences you know, from Taiwan to Hong Kong to Shenzhen. So we kind of went all the way from Taiwan to mainland China um, and some interesting differences in terms of foreign investment, business environment and politics. Very good. Also, our senior news editor, Chris Chermak, will bring us his view from London and we'll also head to Ljubljana for the latest from there. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be rounding up what's happening in the region from Croatia's great labour debate to Slovenia's rail revolution. Plus, Petri Burstoff will update us on the Finnish elections, and Isabella Smith from Books and Company in Copenhagen will give us her book recommendations for 2024. It's the 28th of January, 2024, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. And good morning from Zurich, uh, a rather uh, grey Zurich, not the Zurich of yesterday, which was absolutely glorious. It felt like it was April. It was absolutely rammed here at Dufourstrasse. It was beautiful up in the mountains as well. There might be a promise of sunshine today. I'm not quite sure about that, but I do want to say good morning. Uh, Florian Egli is here, of course, from Four House here in Zurich, uh, heading to Munich soon. We can talk about your move across the border in a moment. Uh, also, uh, Marcus Schugel is uh, here from uh, St. Gallen University. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Uh, Florian, uh, I missed you in, uh, well, Taiwan. Uh, I didn't do Taiwan this, this trip, but you were there for the elections. Yep, uh, and, yep. then, uh, and then, of course, you, you jumped over to, uh, to Hong Kong. Thoughts and impressions? We missed each other for some ridiculous 24 hours. Uh, not even. I think not I missed you by 12. like 24 minutes uh, at Hong Kong <laughs> Airport. But anyway, uh, it was your first time out, uh, out in that region for a while, I believe. Yeah, so. it was. And? It was. Um, uh, very, very striking differences. I mean, um, it was it was super interesting to observe the elections in Taiwan. Um, I think some of the best working um, elections, all manual, all on paper to avoid interference from mainland China. Um, extremely efficient, <clears throat> um, extremely interesting to observe the debates, very open. Um, and then, you know, Hong Kong, which is kind of, I don't know how you see it, but I saw it a bit in between, you know, um, very business friendly, very free. As long as you don't poli- don't talk politics, you can do whatever. Um, but, you know, we have a story from The Guardian that also talks critically about the business environment, which might change now. Um, so I think some of that, um, you know, we, you feel some of that coming when you are talking to people in Hong Kong. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th- thoughts and impressions as well. I feel it's, it is it is bouncing back. I think this was my fifth or sixth trip to uh, to Hong Kong this year. And I think, as, as I've said in the past, it was very slow, very depressing this time last year. It really felt like it had this uh, pandemic extended hangover. Uh, but things are things are picking up. Um, and we can only speak sort of anecdotally how it goes for our business. Uh, but advertising is bouncing back. You feel when you speak to hotel operators, etc., um, that uh, it's not just a return of, of people coming from the mainland, but but also business uh, travelers from elsewhere. But of course, as you say, probably good to uh, avoid conversations that uh, involve Taipei, Washington and Beijing all in one sentence. Exactly. <laughs> um, very good to see you, uh, Marcus. Kids back, kids, students, uh, young adults. I don't know what we call them these days. Anyway, are they are they back in class? No, <clears throat> no they're not. They're still, still on their break. They just finished their exams. So now they've got a decent time to do their internships and maybe get a little bit of rest. And we will be starting by the third week of February then in the new spring semester. Very good. Uh, we're going to talk. I have a feeling this program, just Florian, going back to your point about manual ballots and manual counts and all of these types of things, there's going to have a bit of an, an analog theme to the program uh, 
uh, as well. But uh, I want to bring uh, in our uh, Chris Chermak uh, as well, our senior news editor, uh, who's been a voice on the far side of the Atlantic uh, for a while, but now uh, back at base uh, in London. And Chris, I've not seen you, but, uh, but welcome back. Yes, thank you very much. It's good to be here, Tyler. I do apologize if the sound is slightly echoey to our listeners. That's because I'm in a sea of boxes in my new apartment over here, having just moved. <laughs> well, I, I might ask the question because going back to our analog theme, why you're not in the studio? But anyway, we'll come. We'll come. We'll come back to that. Uh, maybe off air, Chris. But uh, tell us, uh, aside from boxes, etc., uh, what is it? What's catching your eye uh, in terms of uh, what's happening news-wise uh, on your side of the channel? Oh my, well, first of all, I promise to be back in studio very shortly, just doing all my unpacking as much as I can this weekend. So I hope listeners can look forward to that. I was in studio this week through the week uh, back at Midori House. And I have to say, in terms of things catching my eye for this last week, switching from one side of the Atlantic to the other, I have to say it was pretty dire, wasn't it? Some of the headlines that we were hearing this week, this talk of conscription here in the UK, that's something that's really kind of dominated the headlines over the last few days with these warnings from certain military officials that conscription would be needed if a war is coming, warnings from NATO that we might be at war with Russia in five years. Um, it, it's just, I think it's something that you can kind of, kind of wrap together. Also from the U.S., of course, we had the New Hampshire primaries and the elections, which led to all this kind of discussion around the world in various newspapers about what a second Trump term might look like. All of that combined, I think, just leads to this sense of you're, you're kind of having this interesting discussion, I feel like, right now in various capitals around the world, including in London, also looking at protests in Germany over the alternative for, for Deutschland going on, this kind of mix between increasingly dire warnings about where we're headed, and then also people who just kind of want to get on with their lives and, and are kind of ignoring all of this sound that is coming out from these warnings. So I think it's an interesting time to question kind of what the right line is, if you will, between kind of shaking people out of complacency, but also not really causing panic among people, frankly, in terms of how they get on with their lives, how they live in this world that we're in at the moment. That's just something that has really struck me in terms of the tone of, of media organizations, but also in terms of politicians over these last few days. Chris, there was this real, I want to go back to the conscription story, or the, as they were talking about a people's army uh, in, in the UK, uh, there was, of course, a slapdown uh, of the army chief who talked about this, but he was, you know, he was obviously, this was coming off the back of, on one side, uh, of course, uh, the UK wanting to stand up to their NATO commitments in terms of, of contribution, in terms of GDP, but at, at the same time, also dwindling numbers. Now, we did also hear that, uh, that re on the recruiting front, uh, they're at their best numbers. In, in the past eight years. I'm not sure what that, that means uh, and, and if this is um, perhaps a little bit of a fancy PR packaging. But uh, how, did the, how did that play out? Because there was also the sense that actually People's Army okay, but don't, dare, don't you dare bring up the word conscription. Well, exactly. And I think, yes, I think it's fair to say a certain amount of PR was, was in that announcement about recruiting, definitely. We spoke to Sir General General Sir Richard Sheriff on the briefing, I can tell you, on Friday, and he kind of leaned very much into this, that this was about shaking people out of complacency because the numbers, frankly, in the UK, in terms of the number of soldiers they have, has been dwindling for so many years. It is a serious situation, which means if there is any kind of real war 
outbreak, then there will be no alternative but that left. That's where the People's Army comes in. That said, we've had a lot of interesting discussions, I feel, this week about various people also saying, what's the point, frankly, of telling people that this is something that's going to happen, particularly when in the UK, it's not as if you've even had a year of service. It's not as if anyone is actually prepared in that sense. So that's a kind of question going forward as well. You have other countries that are considering bringing something back in terms of military service or have already done that, whether it's Sweden, other countries, so that at least if you're talking about something like conscription, well, people have a little bit of experience, at least with what, you know, what being in the military is like. This idea that you would simply take people here in the UK, um, having had no experience whatsoever, no, no year under the belt of service or anything, and then send them to the battlefield is frankly quite crazy, which is why I think you've also <laughs> seen the British government kind of tamp down the speculation on that. Uh, just I want to bring Florian here. Florian, uh, in, in Taiwan, uh, we've uh, also seen some entrepreneurs, uh, very deep-pocketed ones, also talking about arming the citizens uh, as well. We've seen, in a way, sort of voluntary uh, yeah, rifle ranges, etc., that how can you almost prepare a citizen's army? Of course, at the same time, uh, there is a level of national service uh, in, in Taiwan uh, anyway. But when you look at a story like this, uh, and of course, here we are in a country where conscription is very much part of the culture uh, in in this country. Um, I, I'm wondering how that plays out. How does that ring to your ears uh, when you hear uh, a British military chief say, "Yeah, let's look at a citizens' army." I mean, I mean, two um, two two points to to uh, to note. Uh, one is I did um, the compulsory military service in Switzerland, you know, some um, some years back, and I would never ever, you know, consider myself prepared for any serious situation after these five months. Um, so I don't think that that solves the, the, the problem in the first place. Um, but it might be it might be one step in in the right direction. In Taiwan, it's really interesting because this is a country of um, 23 million inhabitants. Um, you know, right next across the Taiwanese um, Strait is of course China with over a billion um, inhabitants. So in any military conflict, if there is ever one, you know, um, it's it's pretty clear kind of um, if Taiwan is on its own, that's gonna that's gonna be an uphill struggle. And you could imagine that that leads to you know, kind of what you alluded to, some some sort of like a prepper nation, you know, like um, everybody kind of ready to defend their backyard. Um, now my sentiment um, from having spent almost three weeks there now is um, that it's actually quite different. So there is. I wouldn't say complacency, but I've, um, you know, I've I've felt very strong sentiments for um, their kind of way of life and against you know any imposition of of a Chinese way of life. But I've also felt a sort of, um, I mean, I don't I don't want to call it fat, 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 fatalistic or what's the word in English, um, but but kind of like, I don't know if it's complacency, but a, a kind of. An acceptance, like a resignation. That, yeah, to, an acceptance that you know we we cannot change this anyways, and if it happens, it happens, and not this. It didn't go into this. Okay, we're going to defend ourselves at, at at all costs, but rather, you know, we're going to live on our lives as well as possible. We're going to try to to you know make um, our lives full, um, both in terms of personal and in terms of um, business, um, 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 you know, content to life, so to say. And then you know we just hope for the best. So um, not really this kind of preparation in a military sense. And Marcus, I want to bring you in here. Chris, I hope you've unpacked your, your TV because if you flipped on the television in the UK, and if we look at the fact that, that yes, uh, recruiting numbers have improved, uh, Marcus, if you're watching you know, any of the commercial uh, channels in the UK, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of advertising to join the Royal Air Force, to sign up uh, to, to the Royal Navy. Uh, do you think that the ad agencies or the marketing departments of the Ministry of Defence can can take some credit for having uh, good ads? You, you being the marketing man, do 
you think it works seeing people sort of, you know, <laughs> you know whether they're rescuing hostages or doing humanitarian missions, uh, etc. Does, does well, it work? Well, everybody's doing now HR advertising, I would say, because there's labor shortage all around. Um, and I don't know, because when I would use that broad media, I would use it for brand awareness. And if the British are not aware that they have a military, they might be having a bigger problem in a bigger picture. But just bringing to mind that it might be an option for you to go to the military, it might be working just putting up that option in your mind. But I'm not quite sure if it is really what then the one decisive point that makes you to decide you to join the army. Mm. Uh, Chris, just... Uh You've obviously been on the far side of the Atlantic for for a while. Obviously, we don't um, we don't get the U.S. main networks, uh, of course, where you would get domestic advertising. But I'm just wondering if there's any comparison that you can do, you know, in terms of what you see in the U.K. versus, of course, I recall, you know, my my time, whatever, uh, 80s, early 90s in, uh, in in North America, and there was a lot of recruiting advertising, uh, certainly in the U.S. Then, is it the same story uh, now? Is is the Pentagon spending a lot of money? Yeah, to of course uh, help with as, as you know as Mark said, you know skills gra- skills gap labor shortage whatever it may be. Absolutely, Tyler. I can tell you from being there the last year and a half that, yes, I think unlike, say, the UK or other countries that are now considering having to step up recruitment, this is something that is very common in the United States that you see on television. You see it throughout the years that I've been there. Um, and I think they, they look for kind of new ways to, to get into recruiting. One I remember ad that particularly struck me, and they did it in a couple of different versions, was this imagining kind of what the discussion with parents is like. So they do kind of lean into different levers um, when we're talking here about kind of what you can do. Everyone is aware of the military. Yes, they are, but this is where I think the U.S. can be quite clever sometimes, if you will. They kind of lean into discussion about parents saying, are you sure? Do you really want to go? Why do you want to be there? And the child kind of explaining to their parents why they want to serve their country and so on and so forth and kind of being able to convince their parents. And the ad is really just about have that discussion with your children. Be open to having that discussion with your children. So that's, I think, one small example of how the U.S. continues to kind of look for innovative innovative ways, if you will, to kind of change the message of recruiting, kind of tweak wherever the discussion is currently being had, whether it's parents that are worried, children that need a job. They, of course, do all these commercials about how exciting it is, the kind of new skills that you get, those kinds of things as well. But I thought that one with the parents was a particularly interesting example of marketing from the u.s yeah i don't know if you remember the the slogan be all that you can be uh, what, what was uh, was the, was the u.s campaign probably in the what, 80s late 70s maybe uh, marcus yeah but there's a different way of looking at it they had one of the biggest innovation almost 20 years ago when they did a movie called top gun and they had such high application rates in the in the army after that one they repeated this now two years ago and it went very well so there might be a different means for innovative advertising and the other other thing that they're doing in the United States is they're even investing into gaming. They're offering games that are playing and let you play the role within the army. I think they are the furthest in trying to understand what makes people to join. I, I think beyond you know beyond advertising, sadly, I would say probably the most efficient way to get people into the army is economic hardship. Um, so on that, and, and when that kind of structurally, right, and and with that view, I think the UK might be doing quite well. So. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, Chris, just uh, yeah, Chris, just uh, just <laughs> before before we go, uh, I think going back to uh, you know also uh, you know, uh, well, we come off the back of Davos. We've got the Munich Security Conference uh, you know on, on that theme coming up uh, as as well. But maybe just your um, your your impressions. Uh, you know, as you said, you're you're amongst your boxes uh, right now. But um, anything beyond, uh, as you said, the the contrast of the headlines that struck you, but just uh, being back on this side of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 nice to be back on this side of the world, I have to say, Tyler. I think one of the other central impressions, if you will, that I have coming back is just the, the style of the discussion that you have in the United States at the moment with the political environment, extremely divided, extremely angry. There's either those who are kind of very angry and divided about the situation on both sides, or they're just kind of getting on with their lives and ignoring all of the noise. I do think by comparison, being here in uh, the UK, but also as you talk about things like Davos, the Munich Security Conference coming up, I have to just put it in an honest way. I just feel like there is more of an adult-like conversation that is happening in the media over here among politicians as well to kind of face up to some of the challenges that we have in an earnest way that isn't playing quite as much politics with everything going on in the world. So I think, you know, we have huge challenges here in Europe as well. Uh, wars, the war in Ukraine, of course, going on as well. Um, but it just seems like a different style of discussion. And that's something that I kind of look forward to continuing with with anything that I do here in Europe and the UK going forward. Uh, just uh, yeah, Chris, I just want to bring Florian in here. Florian, did you also find it, it's it's interesting being on you know we, when you're sort of of course in Taiwan, uh, also being in, in Hong Kong as well that. We see how absorbed we get. Of course, we have you know conflicts in, on on two doorsteps uh, here in Europe, or at least uh, you know well not even they're they're in our front room, you could say. Uh, but when you're in Asia, and I think our Asian listeners will feel this, is that uh, yeah there are there are things which uh, of course China being a topic if you're if you're in Taiwan or, or Hong Kong as well, but other things which dominate the news agenda, and yet somehow in our Anglo bubble uh, we get sort of very very wrapped up in yeah t- you know two or three principal themes. Yeah, I think it's that's totally true and I think um, it is it is a very different um, it's also a bubble in its own right but it's a very different one so um, you know all of these these conflicts um, that that are happening you know in Europe or with European involvement in some way or another um, you know be it Ukraine or, or in Gaza um, they're not really top top of the headlines um, I mean also it was of course a very special um, period in in Taiwan with kind of um, you know with the election and then we kind of this geopolitical situation and dominating the headlines. In Hong Kong, I felt it was really uh, much more about business environment. Um, and so um, maybe maybe we can link it also to that to that Guardian story um, um, today where, um, you know, Chinese law is, is supposed to become active in commercial disputes now in Hong Kong, um, not just in, in criminal proceedings. Um, so these kind of um, news were really, were really um, the headlines, you know, what happens to foreign direct investment. It was first time since the statistics opened uh, 25 years ago that there was no negative foreign direct investment in China. So these were kind of really um, um, the, the stories that, that caught my um, eyes and ears um, in, in, the, in the past few weeks there. And, and this is the thing that, uh, of course, uh, m- many have been saying that 
in terms of Hong Kong's uh, special status, uh, that it has been, of course, the underpinnings of, of common law, uh, which, uh, of course, have, have made it, of course, the business-friendly environment it is, and, and also yet very much the opposite to what, of course, is happening on, on the other side of the border, where you still talk to people uh, who have had JVs who ventured into China uh, and, and still talk about, uh, you, know, you still hear the word cowboy country, uh, you know, quite, quite often. Um, so I think what that means uh, is, is, is significant moving forward. Chris, just before we round out um, the, the end of the hour, I just want to bring um, Mar- Marcus in on, on a topic as well. Maybe we can do a bit of a, of a, of a roundtable poll. Because you just said, you know, we know about the divisive nature of, of U.S. media, etc. But I'm curious, what did your daily, not international, your daily news diet look like when you were in North America? Um, and then out of that, was there, did you find that there was at least one outlet, uh, whether it was a more independent organization, uh, whether it was one of the more established outlets that you you felt was really sort of you know, be, being able to do it, uh, of course, a good media outlet does, and that is telling, you know, both sides have, having balance of uh, the fundamentals of why we all went into journalism. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a very good question, Tyler, with everything going on. I don't, I wouldn't say that there's an outlet that's getting it perfectly right. I did, of course, look at the Washington Post, NPR, you know, those, those kinds of organizations. I would maybe mention a couple uh, that are interesting. Um, the Fulcrum is an interesting little organization that I sometimes keep an eye on because they are, they are a group that is kind of, kind of coming from the middle, if you will, to discuss politics in the U.S., um, I would also maybe mention a, a group, maybe not news-wise, but Braver Angels is a group that I find very interesting. They're a group that kind of brings Republicans and Democrats together, or Reds and Blues, as they call them, for mediated dialogue across the United States. They also have a website. They do columns and commentaries and discussions on all of the polarizing issues in the U.S. So Braver Angels, I went to their convention last year. Um, they're an interesting group to keep an eye on. Uh, just to Florian and to Marcus, I'm not sure if you've had a, a dry January for media uh, as well, but did you make any resolutions at the start of the year to say, look, at, uh, I'm going to uh, not consume this, uh, but I'm going to read more of that? Goodness, uh, I try to read less because, um, yeah, you get so much mi- mixed up information and I'm trying to dig deeper right now. I'm trying to, to fight my own idea of fake news. I try to employ a little bit more of critical thinking to myself because I think this is much more important than getting every angle on everything, but finding the right article. I still stick to the Brit- and to New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, and Sensei, so what the classic economic educated guy <laughs> in Switzerland might be reading besides The Guardian and all the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the Wall Street Journal, I was disappointed because the Wall Street, the Hong Kong edition of the Wall Street Journal is one full day behind. I was like, How you mean the that? print edition? Yes. Yeah. Like full well, they day. need that to check. That. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> full day behind. Well, right, at, le- at least it, at least it exists <laughs> yeah. in, in in print there uh, because you, you, you can't can get, get the Europe the Europe edition. But what about but, you? I'm just wondering. Uh, and also, yeah, your time in, in Asia, as you said, uh, you know, there's there's of course uh, question marks, um, you know, around uh, of course uh, m- much much media that's emanating from Hong Kong at the moment. Uh, but in terms of your daily diet, Florian, uh, daily diet. I mean, one thing that I changed this year is. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a, a new outlet which is called Heatmap, um, which is really, a, really specialized on climate issues. And um, it's, it's co-founded, or I think the current you know, acting director is Rob Meyer. 
um, who was with the Atlantic before, um, and kind of my my favorite guy um, covering anything related to related to um, climate policy. And and they set up their own shop now, which which I think is kind of a broader tendency that we see. And and there's good and bad to that. So what I like is it's really the best. Um, so far, it's really the best coverage, in-depth coverage of climate policy that, that, that I've seen in the past, you know, five to ten years. Um, what I dislike about it is that, you know, you're going to have more and more specialized outlets on certain topics, and it's just going to become extremely messy, because I don't really want ten subscriptions on ten different topics, but yet, you know, these kind of big one-stop shops, um, you know, seem to me, at least, to not go into the depth that also Marcus uh, mentioned often enough for my, for my taste. But when you have to go to the department store of news, where would you go to the department store of news um you know i my diet is always i mean i have one swiss newspaper just to say on top of politics here um, um that's for sure and then i'm a regular reader of the atlantic so i'm i'm really um i'm, I'm really kind of my my news um diet is going down i think in terms of daily and up in terms of like weekly and monthly um, um and issues and or, of course monocle or you're you saying less departments or more specialty shops exactly and this is this is in a way this is the danger that we talked <laughs> yeah, about for a exactly. long time yeah. that you know you could probably rewind to even this outlet and 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 people saying you know the, the great danger would be that we're going to be in this more specialized world and people are going to be in their silos and then where is the serendipity of news where where do you stumble across something interesting yeah. if you don't go into the department store <sighs> or the mall even i don't know <laughs> reopen the department stores. Well, it could be. Uh, coming up uh, in the next half hour uh, here on Monocle on Sunday, we're going to be heading to Helsinki. Uh, elections, presidential elections there. We'll be talking to our Petri Burstov. Also, we're going to be heading up to Hellerup uh, to talk to uh, Isabella uh, Smith from uh, Books and Company. Very, very good bookstore. And also, um, Guy Delaunay is going to be joining us uh, from Ljubljana as well. Always a few tales from the regions uh, of, the, of the Balkans. Uh, but it's time to head back to London right now. I believe Eminem Nelson is there with the bottom of the hour news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Nine countries, including the US, UK, Switzerland, Germany and Canada, have suspended aid to a UN agency over claims that staff helped Hamas attack Israel on October the 7th. The Agency for Palestinian Refugees has said it has sacked several employees and has begun an investigation. North Korea has reportedly fired several cruise missiles in waters off its east coast. South Korea's military says it's not clear how many or what type of missiles exactly were fired. The world is facing a soft skills crisis as homeworking leaves millions of workers struggling to interact with their colleagues. That's according to the head of one of the world's largest staffing companies. Christophe Catois, who's global president of ADECO, said millions of people are struggling with empathy and creativity. Meanwhile, the boss of the world's largest HR consulting firm says workers who've grown up using social media lack concentration. Martin Fairlong claims the overload of information leads to a risk of people not paying attention attention. And the world's largest cruise ship has begun its maiden voyage. Royal Caribbean's icon of the seas set sail from Miami in Florida yesterday with a capacity of up to 7,600 passengers and 2,350 crew members. The ship runs nearly 350 metres from bow to stern and is divided into eight neighbourhoods across 20 decks with six water slides, seven swimming pools, an ice skating rink, a theatre and more than 40 restaurants, bars and lounges. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Which one of the 40 restaurants are you going for? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm going, I think I'm going to the Caribbean f- Fusion uh, restaurant, maybe. Uh, <laughs> 
I, I, this this is the rest of my day sorted uh, while I, <laughs> I, I, I I go to the Royal Caribbean website. I, listen, I'm going to let you in a little secret. We're gonna, we're, we're going to uh, we'll, we'll save that uh, for our listeners for the end of the show. I want to go back to, uh, of course, this Adeco report um, and uh, and what is coming out of it. I want to bring in uh, cer- certainly Marcus and maybe others. Emma, I don't know if you saw my column today, um, but they must. And it's actually there's a piece also in the in the NZZ about this uh, this this morning, a similar topic. I'm really looking at the state of the modern workplace. I was just saying it's you know it's it's kind of remarkable today when and this is just it's not just our workplace it's everywhere else that you know once upon a time Emma you remember the good old newsroom I do. And, and of course you know when we actually talked about phone bashing and and there was that hum and buzz and people were yeah and, and you know you were you were calling to pitch for a story you were trying to land someone uh, to get them to come in for an interview and there was just this chatter and there was this volume and there was this level of excitement but the you know the the work where there is a you know a workplace which of course is fully manned and staffed. It's completely silent. Uh, it, it, you know, it's extraordinary, and that you know, that when the phone rings, you know, certainly when a, a desk phone rings, a tethered landline rings, it's sort of you know, pe- people sort of you know break out to sweat. Should I pick it up? What should I do? Do I have to have a conversation amongst all of my colleagues? Um, and so it's it's fascinating. And uh, Marcus, I'm not sure if there's been a lot of work, and, and certainly at St. Gallen, a school focused on business. Um, whether this is a conversation, because I was saying you know, some of the best lessons in life, you learn just overhearing and absorbing and also having an intuitive workplace uh, where, okay, oh, oh I, I understand actually, yeah, Marcus is going up to Frankfurt. I don't need to see it in a calendar announcement. It's like, oh, I, I heard that it was going next week. Or on Instagram or something like that. Or, or anywhere else. So I'm just wondering how inefficient we're becoming also on one side uh, by just having lots of different channels to actually recommunicate the same things. If we, you know, if we would have had our headphones off, um, we're doing a lot of it. My my colleagues that are that are doing HR and, and and going for the new work stuff, I think this is this is not even ending right now. And I don't think if the large group office is the answer to all the creativity challenges that we have. But what I think is much much more important is we need to reorganize work. We're getting in new players in, into work. Call them ChatGPT or something like that. They're becoming part of teams. So we need to reorganize ourselves in a way that we can get back to having creative ideas and bring in new players that understand or help us to do creative work. And I think it's going to be a renaissance. As we, as the University of St. Gallen, we are focusing on on personal contact. We're trying to get this controlled serendipity going because we think this is the space um, where, where mostly it happens and where students learn the most. But on the other hand, we need to adjust to the situation that um, the shortage on the work, workplace of, of employees leads to a situation where they're in the driver's seat. So they can choose, choose much more which kind of setting they want to have. And that changes a lot of the idea how we are going to work in the future. I don't know if we're getting back to the good old days where we have creative meetings, running around flip charts, having our, our chai tea and all that stuff. But there will be other ways of getting creative and getting down to things to do. But still, I believe the face-to-face thing is the one. That, it's going to be the most valuable. It's going to be the most expensive one. But it's going to be there for good, I think. Emma, you do a lot of media training, of course. This mm. is getting people out in front of, of, of cameras. You think there's a new business line for you, though, as well. Actually getting people to have to, to you know, pick up a phone in front of other people yeah. and, and, and yeah, do their pitch. Well, it, it's even funnier. You find yourself sometimes talking to uh, restaurants and pub owners who say, I can't get my staff to look customers in the eye because they don't know how to interact with people and and they don't know how to 
understand or read a space. So they, you know, so people come in and the person looking after you in the restaurant is looking at their iPad because that's sort of how they can sort of exist. And so you have to sort of train them to say you need to occupy your space and you need to make sure that actually you are talking to a human person and you do need to listen a little bit because I don't know, there's so so much of our time was spent and so many people now still are uh, working from home still, which which in my view, and dare me for being rude, is the accused to sort of go and pick your toes in the back bedroom all day. It's a really strange situation that we find ourselves in and that unwillingness to actually physically engage with other people is very real. Yeah, I said actually the, the, the whole home working thing is really not about picking your sort of toenails in the back bedroom. That could be one part of it as well or just having an extra hour in bed or whatever. But it's also, I think, just, you know, not wanting to perform in front of other colleagues uh, as well. I think we're, we've landed in this place, at least the people who vote for that. You know, there's just this this fear of maybe just being caught out, being corrected, even, even, even being coached. Yes, anyway. it's, a, it's a really simple thing. Show up. It's really hard. But also enjoy your space as well so you make sure that if you are at work you can concentrate you can get on with it i know for a fact if i am working at home my mind is about 80 percent on my job and 20 percent on the stuff around me the domestic you know clutter that needs to be addressed as well and so that absolute joy of being able to have a separation from work and, and home is for me absolutely crucial in many cases well, I want to talk about separation from uh, also, you know, home and uh, and elections. Uh, we're going to our Petri Burstoff right now, who uh, should be covering uh, the, the Finnish elections. He might be doing it with the Finnish diaspora. I would think he would be in Helsinki. But where is he, listeners? He's in the Canary Islands. Uh, so um, good morning uh, or, or bueno, buenos dias. Uh, uh, very, very nice to have you, uh, Petri. I, I do know that there, of course, there are a lot of direct daily flights at this time of year when, Hel- when Finland is still very dark. So maybe it is a good place uh, to, of course, cover the Finnish presidential elections from the Canaries. It is. It's a really good place. I have to say, Tyler, one of the reasons I'm here is I used to produce those election night shows for the for the Finnish public broadcaster. So, so you know, now that I don't produce them, I, I wanted to just escape and, and do as, as half of the Finnish and Swedish and Norwegian populations do this time of year and just just come come somewhere where, where there's enough sun. And, and so I'm in a small uh, town close to Las Palmas, but, um, you know, I'll be keeping my eyes fixed on the on on the laptop and following the results as they as they come in tonight. And tell uh, tell me, is it uh, one of these like little Finnish villages that sort of you know uh, prop up in the subtropical region, or or are you surrounded by 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 other Europeans? Maybe even a Spaniard might be near you. Uh, <laughs> goodness, goodness, yeah, I I I I I've heard a few. Uh, sentences uttered in Spanish as well, but you hear a lot of Swedish and and, and German here. And there is a Swedish just uh, looking out of my balcony now. I see a Svenska school. I hear so a Swedish school, and I, I think there's a Swedish church as well. And you can get a Swedish haircut. I can I can tell there's a supermarket there that says uh, oh, a Swedish suit, haircut, so. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. so that's like a, it's a hockey mullet then uh, for, for sure. Okay, well <laughs> we, we can dissect this another day. Uh, presidential elections. Uh, Alexander Stubb is back. Uh, I mean, he wasn't quite out in the wilderness, but he was. Uh, he he was certainly a fixture uh, at the start of the 2000s uh, and has popped up from time to time. Uh, but he seems to be the front runner for the Conservatives. Yeah, that's that's correct. So um, as the listeners might remember, he was the Finnish, both the foreign minister and then later on the prime minister uh, some time back and then sort of escaped uh, to Italy, as, as some, some Finns do, some to Spain, some to Italy. He, he became the professor of international politics at the Florence at the European University Institute. But now he's back. And yeah, he, as ni- you nice, said, he's, nice gig, Alexander. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now he's back and now he's looking to become the, the president. And he is, as you said, the front runner. He's polling a couple of percentage points above uh, the challengers, which are 
Pekka Haavisto, uh, uh, previous foreign minister in the previous government, uh, who is running as an independent, but I mean, he's a longstanding Green Party member and, and represents the Green Party. And then a surprise challenger as well in the just in the past couple sort of week, week or two, we've seen the uh, former Finns party, so the far right populist Finns party leader, former leader Jussi, Jussi Halla-aho, uh, polling quite high, just a few percentage points behind Stubb as as well. So it's going to be a, quite a nail biter tonight. But I mean, as as is customary in Finnish elections, it, it never finishes in the first round. Nobody gets more than fifty percent because Stubb is po- polling, I think, at twenty. Five or twenty-four, so it's going to be a runoff round on February eleventh, and that's when we uh, then finally get to know who the next president is. And do you think uh, you see Hala? Oh, do you think he could? Uh, yeah, uh, could, well, could we be in a situation? Of course, he throws his hat uh, into the ring just uh, you know almost within the last month, uh, and and obviously this uh, this is obviously you know backed by probably decent polling uh, evidence. Uh, if you're a betting man down in the Canary Islands, uh, Petri, um, w- what does the runoff look like to you? I think it's going to be Stoop against either Havisto or um, Hollow. Stoop is definitely going to be there. I have my money on on Stoop. Uh, this is not an endorsement, just you asked who I would bet for. Yeah. But I mean, if it's Hollow in the second round, uh, it's going to be a clear victory for Stoop. Because I mean, there was, I also saw a poll of who would you definitely not vote for? Who, so who's sort of the most disliked candidate? And Halaho was by far the clear winner. So, you know, he's a divisive figure, but I, I mean, the, the Finns party polls had about 20%. So, I mean, he's, he's just basically, the party is rallying be- behind him. That's why he's getting all those uh, um, sort of votes in the, uh, in, the, in the polls, but I don't think he has a chance to win this, no. Mm. Just uh, maybe uh, for uh, those uh, listeners who are not followers uh, of uh, geopolitics on your side of the, of, of the, the Baltic, um, just tell us about the roles of both the, the president and the prime minister, uh, what these roles mean, uh, both uh, day-to-day functions, but also uh, ceremonially as well in Finland. Well, that's the thing. I mean, in most European countries, presidents enjoy this sort of a ceremonial role, such as, let's say, in Estonia or, or Germany, for example. But in Finland, the president has quite a lot of power. I mean, he is the he leads the Finland's foreign policy together with the government. But, you know, for example, NATO summits, he represents Finland. But not only that, he's the supreme commander of the Finnish armed forces. So especially in wartime, you know, he has a has a lot of power. He has the power also to uh, appoint high-ranking military officers and and decide on, together with the generals, decide on a possible military strategy. So, of course, in a time when Finland is the latest latest member of NATO, um, NATO is drawing up defense plans on its eastern flank. And, you know, with the sort of larger conflict looming on the horizon, I mean, it's it's quite a key election to to see who who will lead Finland in, in, in this situation. Uh, just uh, b- before we go, uh, I think we have to, uh, yeah, uh, maybe he- head back to the Sun Lounger, uh, where 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 you are. Uh, of course, uh, maybe this is uh, a, a territory. It sounds like you're maybe rather familiar uh, with uh, the, the suburbs of Las Palmas uh, or wherever you may be um, at, at the moment, uh, Petri. Um, have Finns uh, winter? Uh, yeah, I would say sort of sun habits changed. Of course, you know that the Canaries have always been a firm favorite. Uh, or, or do we see uh, you know, Finns venturing further afield? I mean, of course, yes, they go to Thailand, they go elsewhere. But would you say there's sort of a new national favorite uh, that Finns are flocking to? 
I would say it's still uh, just looking around. I would say it's still Las Palmas and, and the Canary Islands, you know, Tenerife, Gran Canaria, just because it's so convenient. It's a direct six-hour flight, and it's you know, 25 degrees here. Finns don't need more. We're a bit uncomfortable when it gets to sort of 35 degrees Celsius. So it's just so so easy. And as you said, you know, especially for older Finns, you can get service in Finnish <laughs> Finnish here, which is you know, kind of kind of funny. You have menus and restaurants in Finnish as well. So it's it's still the clear clear favorite. Okay, fins in the comfort zone. Uh, Petri, uh, I'm sure we'll be uh, we'll be checking in uh, with you. I'm not sure when you're leaving uh, the the islands, but uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, election coverage, of course, uh, from you and analysis uh, from the Canary Islands, uh, probably with uh, the Globalist uh, and and other programs. Uh, Petri Brostov, uh, our Helsinki correspondent, uh, joining us uh, there. Um, Gentlemen, will you be tuning in uh, to Ulle, the, uh, the the Finnish national broadcaster, this evening uh, to watch uh, to watch the elections and the results uh, pour in? I hope so. Yes, I, I, I'll, I hope I'll, so. I'll, we, we, <laughs> I'll have I'll have a look now that it's been mentioned. I, it was not on my radar. It was it was on your radar, Marcus. You brought it up. I will watch. Okay, good. All right. Well, maybe you can join uh, the analysis uh, as well. Uh, time to head to the other side of Europe uh, right now. Our guy Delaney, I believe, uh, is is probably not uh, in uh, in Dubrovnik uh, or, or is certainly not in Cyprus or elsewhere. I believe he is in Ljubljana, where he should be. Uh, good morning, guy. I am indeed in Ljubljana, Tyler, and I have to tell you, having been listening in, uh, that Slovenia is one of those countries where if you want to get someone's attention, you pick up the phone and you ring them. If you send them an email, they'll most likely just ghost you. And uh, this is, uh, you've seen sort of, I mean, of course, you've been out, out in this part of the world for, for a long time. Uh, this is just sort of part of the, the, the national code and how things work. It's not, it's not uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not people being Luddites, is it? It's just part of the culture? I think it's just part of the culture. And it was noticeably different when we were living in Belgrade in Serbia. When we moved here to to Ljubljana, which is now, gosh, six years ago, um, we noticed immediately a difference that you know, the kind of communications you need to make in with people in Slovenia are distinctly different from those that you would make with people in Serbia. Even if they, even of course, uh, they of course they were once part of Yugoslavia, all of it. And uh, it's, it's it's quite interesting that you've got that here, whereas. Even now, if I want to communicate with officials, I'll pick up the phone or indeed just if, if, it's, a, if it's a personal thing, I'll go around to the office and see them in person. Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting one because uh, yeah I'm just going to bring my guests in here as well because I, I still feel like Switzerland is also one of the few countries where you you will get uh, where telesales still exist which yep. is kind of remarkable uh, that the phone will just randomly ring and, and someone is offering you car insurance uh, or they might want to wash your pet or I don't know I mean <laughs> I, I don't know what it is uh, but it's 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 remarkable Marcus I mean you're in the world of marketing I'm just wondering uh, is this is this one of the last countries standing and maybe there's also there's a theme here. Well, I was going to say, I was about to say Slovenia landlocked country, but it's not. Uh, I almost fell no, into no. that trap. No, no, it's not. So any, anyway, almost landlocked. Uh, what What is it about? Uh, I don't know. I was thinking the same thing right now, because uh, this is the one thing that that really different, differentiates, I think, Switzerland from a lot of under, other countries. But I still believe we're into face-to-face. And um, we're not really in Switzerland. You're not reluctant to new technologies, but you ask for the benefit. So the old things prevail, and, and well, not as in Germany, where you still have the fax in every office. <laughs> maybe just uh, Florian, very quickly, but can you can you shine some light on this? Uh, wh- why do they yeah, still have uh, tell us? Maybe it's a small country thing. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. you tend to know each other uh, much quicker in, yeah. in small countries, and then um, you tend to have kind of lower barriers to just picking up the phone yeah. or sending a text. Um, and I think so. What's what's always striking people from abroad, you know. 
come to Switzerland and who, for example, work with me, is that, for example, if you have a question on your tax or social insurance, you just call them. Right. You, can, you can actually call large administrations and somebody will pick up the phone and will like, you know, enter your name and will actually be able to look at your file like within 30 seconds. And that just like, for example, Germans or, or people from France, this strikes them as, as an, an impossibility. You know, yeah, yeah. We, we, we just we need a formula. Yeah, we just had some uh, some friends of Monaco who moved here recently from from New York, uh, and and I think we're also sort of astounded by the fact that that you can that public administration really works by going in person and also uh, by by picking up the phone. But that's a service orientation that is really Swiss, to be honest. And, and it costs something. You pay it for does. everything. You have to pay for it, yeah. but, but there is a service to yeah, it. Yeah, you, you sort of yeah, you sort of leave with a smile. Okay, back back. Sorry, sorry for that slight diversion, uh, guy. But does any of this maybe we're talking about service? Does this maybe sort of play into uh, any of your stories? Maybe Sunday shopping well, potentially? Well, potentially, yes. I, don't want, I wanted to move next door to Croatia, where there are actually Sunday shopping is a, a thing here as well, which is to say it isn't a thing anymore because uh, during the pandemic it got shut down completely. It, it carried on after the pandemic. We don't have shops open on Sundays now in Slovenia. And uh, there's a right old controversy going on in, uh, in Croatia about this because they introduced legislation in the middle of last year saying that shops would not be allowed to trade on Sundays, uh, which didn't make a huge impact at the time because they're allowed to open on 16 Sundays during a year. So if you introduce the legislation halfway through the year, well, people can pretty much stay open every Sunday to the rest of the year if they plan it correctly. Um, this this year it's beginning to bite and of course everybody's saying hang on a second what exactly are we trying to achieve here we've got some shops open but not others uh, we've got exceptions that it can apply so you can buy a loaf of bread from a, a petrol station but you can't buy a loaf of bread from a baker and what why on earth are betting shops allowed to be open every Sunday and shops not if we're saying that the reason we're doing this is because we're a Christian country Mm, yeah, I, I can imagine a, a lot of wasted resources uh, go, going into that. But does this become a bit of a, well, maybe it's on an election topic, but, uh, but how does this play out, do you think? At the moment, it depends on who you talk to. The thing is, in Croatia, the, the Catholic Church remains an extremely powerful institution. It's very intimately connected uh, with the governing party, the HDZ, which has you know, been pretty much the party of government in Croatia since the 1990s, with, with a couple of uh, in, uh, exceptions. And it, that power is still there. And, of course, the HDZ wants to keep its base, who are regular churchgoers, uh, happy. And it'll sometimes find itself tying itself in knots, trying to justify these moves which it's made to justify its base, uh, to, to, to please its base, um, trying to justify that to the rest of the country. And, you know, you read certain media outlets, and you're certainly finding a lot of people who are unhappy about this, and they're certainly not happy about having vast queues outside, say, the one shopping mall in, in Zagreb, which is open this Sunday, for example. Um, people are finding that, on a practical level, um, they're not entirely sure about this uh, ban on Sunday trading at all. Uh, maybe, uh, of course, this, uh, there's obviously a mobility issue, and uh, we certainly see this. Uh, I, I remember growing up in, uh, in, in, in Canada, we had the same thing, that it was amazing that, you know, in Toronto, a huge city, everything was closed, but then you could drive across the border to Buffalo, and of course, Buffalo, New York benefited uh, because of Sunday shopping. That all changed at a certain point. Well, but I want to go on to the topic of mobility, being able to cross borders. A um, bit of a, a high-speed rail moment uh, on the horizon Absolutely, there is. And this is a big one for, for me because I love to travel by train, most of all. And it it's, can be frustrating traveling by train. 
uh, in Slovenia and from Slovenia to anywhere else. I mean, I gave up recently trying to get from Ljubljana to, uh, to, Ve- to Vienna by train, uh, which should be quite, quite simple, really, if you think about it. It's, Ljubljana was uh, a part of the Habsburg Empire. I thought there was a nice direct rail link to Vienna. No chance. Um, there is actually one direct train a day, but it, it arrives at a really uh, inconvenient time in Vienna after about seven hours. Uh, but now Trenitalia and Slovenian Railways have signed an agreement that they're going to start rapid train services with no breaks at the border to change crews or trains or any of those sort of shenanigans. And the idea is there's going to be a Ljubljana to Milan service direct. And this could be happening as soon as April. And it'll be uh, using these very impressively uh, rapid uh, Italian trains, the, the Freccia Rossa, I think they are. Um, and they will be linking Ljubljana and Milan in seven hours. Uh, which is pretty good, bearing in mind that would be going through Trieste, Venice, Bologna and Florence en route. Um, and you can imagine, I mean, that's just going to be one of the great uh, rail journeys. And I don't know about taking it direct. You'd want to stop off at every single place, wouldn't you? Well, maybe it was taking seven hours. Florence shaking his head. I'm not sure. What, I mean, I, listen, I think we all love rail travel. What's your, what's your, what's your threshold, Florian? You, you Four can, hours? You can stop for a stint at Florence, yeah, right? Yeah. We, we heard that. <laughs> no, my th- my threshold, I think about six. six but, although okay. I go to Berlin next week yeah. by train. But overnight. Which is gonna, no, 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 yeah. yeah. no, <laughs> I'm in for a treat with Deutsche Bahn. Okay, so Guy, we're, we're going to uh, we're going to monitor uh, this one and uh, and and make sure that uh, that it happens. And maybe I, I feel there's a mini mini rail documentary from you uh, on the horizon. Correct. I'm on for that. Okay, Guy Delaney uh, in uh, Ljubljana uh, for us. Uh, just uh, approaching uh, the end of the program, time for a few uh, book tips. Uh, we're heading up to Hellerup, uh, just a little bit uh, north of, uh, of course, of Copenhagen uh, to talk to Isabella Smith, one of our regular contributors on the books front. Uh, good morning, uh, Isabella. Very nice uh, to have you on the program from Books and Company. Uh, 2024 is here. Uh, maybe uh, let's start in the world of, of fiction. What, what should people be reading? Yeah, good morning, Tyler. Great to be back on the show. Um, a lot of the chat now, of course, is about what's coming out very soon. And uh, fiction-wise, I think one of the books that everyone's looking forward to is Table for Two by Amor Towles. And Towles' book, Gentleman in Moscow, was hugely popular and still is. And there's a lot of buzz about his new book, which is a collection of stories all set in the golden age of Hollywood. Um, another one that everyone's looking forward to, which is not fiction, but is Salman Rushdie's Knife, which is a personal account of surviving uh, the attack on his life in 2022. Um, that has been in the makes for a while, and everybody's excited about that and to see, to read that. And at the very other end of the spectrum, I would say, is uh, a book by Emily Henry, who's like a rom-com, one of the biggest uh, authors right now on romantic books. Her book's Funny Story, which I'm sure will be next year's sort of big romantic uh, beach read. Um, And then we have a little bit of nonfiction, or we have a lot of nonfiction, but some of the nonfiction that I would mention now is the book Super Communicators by Charles Duhigg. um, And it's about how to become someone who can communicate effectively in any situation, which probably is going to be interesting in this very highly political year that we're getting into. And um, on a more controversial ground is Johan Hari, who wrote the book uh, Stolen Focus. And he's back with a book called Magic Pill, which is about the benefits and risks of these new weight loss drugs. 
Um, and uh, that's something that a lot of people are also looking forward to. And uh, right now, I would say at the beginning of the year, everyone's sort of into how can I start a new life, um, a new like renew myself and healthy and all of that. So we have books like When Things Don't Go Your Way, um, about dealing with adversity, things like that are very um, strong at the beginning of the year, as are um, healthy cookbooks, because everybody wants to start at least start out uh, with a more balanced and healthy approach to life. Uh, so give us, uh, yeah, and on the healthy cookbook front, especially on a Sunday towards the end of the month, uh, what's, what's your tip there? I would say a couple of new ones are um, Healthy Made Simple by Ella Mills of Deliciously Ella fame and Easy Wins by Anna Jones because one of the things that people really want is they don't, don't just want healthy, they want easy and fast healthy. So those books are good for that. Oh, and anything to do with an air fryer. Any cookbooks that have that can be used with an air fryer, that's just huge right now. I think a lot of people have received air fryers for Christmas, so that's uh, what a lot of people look forward to. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure our our our, uh, our listeners in Korea are shaking their heads because I think the air fryer movement happened like whatever. 10 years ago in Korea, but at least it sort of reached this part of uh, part of the world. Just before we go very quickly as well, um, trading season, uh, tell me in 30 seconds, uh, Christmas was good and uh, new, new, the new year starting well for your trade? Christmas was great. Thank you so much. We loved it. It was a great Christmas season and trading is strong right now already. We can see lots of lots of excitement about new books. I think people really want to understand the world this year with everything that's going to be going on and is going on. So we feel we feel that very strongly. Yes, thank you. Very good. Isabella Smith uh, from the very, very wonderful uh, Books and Company up in Copenhagen. I think we need it's time when the sun comes out uh, springtime, Isabella. We need to do a, another cocktail party out in front of your shop. I think I've lost her. Anyway, she, she's going she's to restack the shelves. Uh, we're also coming uh, to the almost coming to the end of the program uh, here. Emma Nelson, are you still uh, in your chair uh, over in London? I think she is. Maybe she's not. Hello. Maybe she, oh, no, there you are. Good. Sorry, we okay. just, I thought just, you fell off your chair. No, we were just trying to find Isabella. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine. It's, it was. It's fine. I think uh, everyone's out buying air fryers uh, as well. Oh, I've I mean, got. Uh, I've got one under um, the bench in my kitchen, and, and I haven't not, used it for years. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't well, that, even opened that's, it because that's not part of the French diet. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> Maybe it is. Very quickly, I said that uh, I was going to share a little secret with you. We were having a big old laugh about uh, the Royal Caribbean ship. I'm off to. Uh, I'm heading to Barbados uh, in a few minutes no. because this program. Emma, we're going to be co-anchoring from sea next week, not on the Royal Caribbean ship, uh, but we're going to be on uh, on the new Explorer, which is much smaller. It does not run to four digits in terms of passengers, so well, just, just FYI. Okay, we'll try and get a cable to connect you that's long enough, something yeah. under sea. That's wonderful. I, I, I think so. I believe there are satellites over the Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say thanks, Florian. Very nice to see you. I hope we will catch you again before you leave for Munich soonish, don't you? Likewise, yes. I'll leave soon, but I'll be back. It's not so far. Marcus Sugarlight, students are back as well very soon, aren't they? They're going to be back, and I'm going to be back, and uh, it's going to be great. We'll catch them all then. Emma Nelson in London, Chris Chermack with his boxes, Petri Burstoff in the Canaries trying to cover the election for us, uh, and uh, in Finland, that is also Guy Delaney and Isabella Smith. A huge thank you. Uh, Emma Nelson and Mariella Bevan were our producers over in London. Also had Laura Kramer here. Very nice to have her in studio here in Zurich. Also, Steph Chungo back in London as well. I'm Tyler Brulai. I'm out at sea next week. We'll speak to you then. Goodbye. <laughs>